0: key jai krishna baby Devi Kija, Tulsi Maharani Kija, Sabhita Bhakta Rindakija, Gaur Premnande. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Gauranga. All glories to Sri Prabhupada, the Mahon, the Sri Padaya. She prastya butale srimate bhakti vedantaswamiti namani namase sarasvati deva goravani prachary paskachade sutany Vandeham Sri Guru Sri Uta Partam Lam Sri Gurun Bajnavamscha Sri Rupam Sagrajatam Sahagana Ragnatam Vikam Sam Sadvoitam, Sadvaditam, Padijana, Sahita, Krishna, Kirita, Radha, Krishna, Padam, Sahagana, Ravita, Shri Vishak, Kamu becomes Chak, Anchakalpa, Trivias Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya
1: Om Bhagavate Vasudevaya
0: It's October 26, 2015, Skype class from Hilo, Hawaii, and we're reading from Shinma Jagatam, Canto 3, Chapter 7, Further Questions by Vidura. Text five. <laughs> De Shita Kalato Yosa. He
2: shita,
1: shita Kalato Yosa.
0: Avastata Swatoniata. Stasa
1: Swatoniata.
0: Avi Luptava Bodatma. Avi
1: Luptava Bodatma.
0: Sa Ujeta Jaya Katam Ye. Yujeta. Ye. Yujeta. Ye. Engaged Ye. Ajaya
3: Ajayana. with
0: nescience nesh- katam. Katam.
3: katam
2: katam
0: How is it so? Is it so? Translation in purport by Shula Prabhupad. The pure soul is pure consciousness and is never out of consciousness, either due to circumstances, time, situations, dreams, or other causes. How then does he become engaged in essence? Purport. The consciousness of the living being is always present and never changes under any circumstances, as above mentioned. When a living man moves from one place to another, he is conscious that he has changed his position. He is always present in the past, present, and future, like electricity. One can remember incidents from his past and can conjecture about his future also on the basis of past experience. He never forgets his personal identity, even though he is placed in awkward circumstances. How then can the living entity become forgetful of his real identity as pure spirit soul and identify with matter, unless influenced by something beyond himself? The conclusion is that the living entity is influenced by the avidya potency, as confirmed in both the Vishnu Purana and the beginning of Srimad Bhagavatam. The living entity is mentioned in Bhagavad Gita 7.5 as Pada Prakriti, and in the Vishnu Purana he is mentioned as the Pada Shakti. He is part and parcel of the Supreme Lord as potency and not as the potent. The potent can exhibit many potencies, but the potency cannot equal the potent at any stage. One potency may be overcome by another potency, but to the potent, all potencies are under control. The jiva potency, or the Kshetrajya Shakti of the Lord, has a tendency to be overpowered by the external potency of vidyakarma Samgya, and in this way he is placed in the awkward circumstances of material existence. The living entity cannot be forgetful of his real identity unless influenced by the avidya potency. Because the living entity is prone to the influence of the avidya potency, he can never equal the supreme potent. Deshata yosav yata avilukta vabodatma sa yujeta jayakatam. The pure soul is pure consciousness and is never out of consciousness. Either due to circumstances, time, situations, dreams, or other causes. How then does he become entangled in nescience? So, this is one of those very good questions. Without very good questions, there's no shastra. Right? All of the shastra is simply questions and answers. And the questions that are asked, as we see here, are challenging questions. They're not, um, how would we say, they're not afraid to ask very challenging questions. Sometimes people have the idea that spiritual life means uh, submission, and submission means that you never ask challenging questions. Now, challenging questions should be asked in a submissive mood in the sense that if you don't think the person you're asking has the answers, there's no point in asking them. So, you know, I had had somebody write me an email asking for help with a, a personal situation and this person had asked for help with their personal situation before And never followed any of the advice that I'd given, so I I wrote back the person and said, you know, you're presenting this letter to me as if I'm some kind of authority for you, and you've asked me these questions before, I never followed, why should I uh, answer your question this time? Right? And as a teacher, I used to ask the kids sometimes, you know, are you simply arguing or do you want to know the answer? You know, the kids come up and they say, Why is this problem wrong? I did everything right. It shouldn't be (laughs) wrong. Why do we have to do it this way? And they're not really interested in finding out the answer. They're just trying to challenge authority. So that kind of challenge is is worthless. Just like Srila Prabhupada was asked many times, especially by non-devotees, Can you see God? Have you ever seen God? Uh, I was there with Srila Prabhupada once when he was asked this question by a reporter. And uh, at least sometimes Srila Prabhupada would just answer the question. Uh, He would say, yes, I am seeing God at every moment. And other times he would put it back to the person asking and saying, if I answer this question, will you accept my answer? Are you prepared to accept what I have to say? Because otherwise, what is the use of asking the question? So, in the sense of whether or not we're willing to accept the answer, in that sense, we shouldn't be asking challenging questions. Of course, there is a time when we ask challenging questions without knowing whether or not we're going to accept the answer, and that is in the period of a year prescribed by the Hari Bhakti Vilas for testing one's spiritual master before accepting initiation or before accepting that this is going to be my shiksha guru. So the Hari Bhakti Vilas says that at least one year should go on between uh, the, where the guru is testing the disciple and the disciple is testing the guru. And, and one year is a minimum. It can certainly be more than that. And at that time, one is not automatically accepting the answers. One is asking questions to determine is this person really a bona fide guru, not just to determine the answers to the questions? And Prabhupada says a guru is understood not by vision, but by hearing. So it's, it's not what the guru looks like, you know, is the guru an old Indian man with a long beard? <laughs> but is, what does the guru say? You know, Sukadeva Goswami here, who the main guru in the Bhagavatam, uh, he's a young man with no beard so it's not a question of appearances so in that sense there may be challenging questions at that time in that circumstances when one is really testing the teacher but once a teacher has been accepted challenging questions should be asked uh, not for the person not for the purpose of challenging the authority of the teacher but for the purpose of gaining real understanding And once one has ascertained that we're dealing with a bona fide teacher, that should be the general mood. But challenging questions of a bona fide teacher are not only allowed, they're actually required. So, prashnena, questions. And we find that throughout the scripture, as in here, that very deep, difficult, and challenging questions are there. Arjuna asks Krishna, you know, how is it that you're recommending a system of yoga to me which seems impossible? You know, I, I think I'm going to fail and I'll become like a riven cloud with no position in any sphere. You know, what, what will happen to me? And what happens to somebody who takes up this yoga system and fails? And Arjuna also says to Krishna, I'm bewildered by your equivocal instructions. He says, first you ask me to put all abominable activities far distant by practice of booty yoga, and then you tell me to get up and fight. So it seems like you're asking me to do two opposite things here. I I really just don't understand. Uh, This particular set of questions that Vidura is asking, and this chapter is called Further Inquiries by Vidura, uh, is based on Maitreya's answers to his first set of questions. So basically, Maitreya's answers simply sparked a new set of questions. Now, we need to learn from these interchanges both as askers and as answerers. So both with having the courage to reveal our real questions and having the courage to take hard questions so let's look at these questions that are being asked and as we brought up before uh, these questions are also asked in the second chapter by Maharaj Parika to Sukadeva Goswami so as far as the sages at Namasharanya, you could say they've already heard this question and answer uh, we who are reading through the Bhagavatam now thousands of years later by the grace of Srila Prabhupada we've also heard this question and answer so why is it being brought up again to us? We can understand why it may be brought up again by Vidura, but why is it being brought up again to us? And perhaps the reason is that this particular question seems to be the question. You know, of, of all the questions that anybody can ask about Krishna consciousness, uh, this is the question that causes the most doubt. It's asked everywhere over and over again, uh, regardless of cultural background, regardless of education level. It seems to be the question that pretty much anyone who takes up uh, Vaishnav philosophy in general, uh, Gaudiya Vaishnav philosophy in particular, but Vaishnav philosophy in general, inevitably asks at some point, how, are, how, is, how do we put together, the basic question is, how do we put together the fact that we are a pure soul that our original position is in full knowledge and bliss with our present condition of really abject ignorance and, and suffering. And the more that one progresses in Krishna consciousness, the more, in, in a sense, one may ask this question. So it's a very common initial question from somebody just learning about Krishna consciousness And it's also a very common question that keeps cropping up in one form or another as we progress, which is, again, perhaps why the question doesn't come up only once in the Bhagavatam. I mean, I have people regularly uh, writing me, talking to me with varieties of this question. Uh, I have an email sitting in my inbox right now where I've been having a back and forth with someone on varieties of this question. And... And people uh, in ISKCON, out of ISKCON, in various Gaudiya groups have written lengthy books, hundreds of pages of books, uh, just simply looking at this one particular question. So how is it that we are a pure soul and yet we are so entangled? I I think especially it becomes a question as we go on because when we first come to Krishna consciousness, we may not have a sense of how entangled we are you know a, a gross materialistic person may just think well yeah uh, there's some problems in life but altogether life is pretty good and as one goes on in krishna consciousness one starts seeing wow I, i'm really fallen i'm i'm really entangled i'm i'm really a, i have so many problems the ones internal uh attachments and and Evil. I mean, I, I don't think there's an, there's another way to say it. One's internal evil starts becoming exposed to oneself, and the difference between the evil we see in our heart and the description of the pure soul becomes greater and greater and greater. You know, the whiter becomes whiter and the blacker becomes blacker in, in a sense. You know, the, the, we understand what is purity more and more and more, and we see the difference between that purity and ourself more and more and more. I was reading again a, a story from Maya Purdum of this uh, woman who was given as Prasad one of the uh, nails that are put on the Nasingadev deity, and she put the nail in her room when she went to bed that night, and she had a dream that Lord Nasingadev was opening up her heart and pulled out this black gunk and said to her, you think this is love, but it's actually lust. You know What do you want me to do with it? So we start to see that what we think is love is lust, and then the question becomes even greater. You know How how do I do that? How am I here? So Vishnu Chakravarti Thakur analyzes the question's that uh, are being asked here by Vidura, and he says the questions are as follows: How can the jiva be bewildered by maya, be bewildered by illusion? So this is a general question. How how is it possible at all? And then he's asking very specific questions: How can the jiva, whose awareness cannot be destroyed by place and time, become associated with ignorance? So we have Desha kala. I'm sure we're very familiar with these terms, Deshkalapatra, time, place, and circumstance. And we're told that we must adjust our practice of spiritual life, our teaching of spiritual life, according to Deshkalapatra, that we have eternal principles, but those principles have to be applied according to time, place, and circumstance. Well, why? (laughs) Why do they? Because the consciousness of the jiva is affected by time, place, and circumstance. And it most certainly is. The way that a living entity views reality, and this is a fact which is corroborated by modern empirical science, the way a jiva views reality is very much affected by the historical time, the culture, and so forth. I mean, if we think about the fact that it was only a few hundred years ago, that's not a long time ago. I mean, really, 150 years ago, 200 years ago, when the concept of slavery was widely accepted in the world and was a legal practice of most governments. I, you know, we're talking like the beginning of, of the 1800s. That's only 200 years ago that slavery was legal in most of the countries of the world, and it was an accepted social practice. Pretty Amazing. And, and that's how people saw reality. They saw that that was fine, that it was okay, that it was moral, that it was ethical. So, Vidura is asking this question how does the consciousness of the living entity, the awareness of the living entity, which is supposed to be pure, which is supposed to have uh, knowledge of right and wrong and good and bad, and uh, that's not conditioned? by time, place and circumstance. How does it become conditioned? Next question How does the jiva lose knowledge in the association of ignorance? I even materially speaking, you know, if you're an educated person, being around an uneducated person doesn't make you lose your own education. You know, if I if I'm around an illiterate person, I do not lose my ability to read. Right? When, when I went to China, at least when I was there, practically nobody knew English at all. And that didn't mean that I forgot my own English. I wasn't covered by their ignorance. And we find, in fact, the liberated souls are just like Srila Prabhupada. Srila Prabhupada came to the West, and he didn't lose his own glory. He stayed in a place where people had cat food, which is meat. Cats can't be vegetarians. And, you know, they had meat in their refrigerator. Prabhupada didn't lose his own purity. He wasn't affected by their ignorance. But we see that the conditioned jiva, it becomes affected by ignorance. If the jiva is in a, a situation of ignorance, the jiva becomes ignorant. Their own knowledge becomes covered. So how is that? And Vishnu Chakravati goes on to say the jiva becomes affected by place. So by by time, by ignorance, and by place, just as a seed sown in barren earth does not grow, right? We we see this in practical life. This is something that Jesus said. He said, if you plant your seeds in barren earth, and they, if you plant them on a rock, then they won't grow. So the seed has potency. The seed is alive, but it doesn't exhibit that potency if it's in the wrong place. So this is the question of of The place shouldn't affect the living entity, it shouldn't matter. I mean, place is in one sense a function of illusion, the whole idea of space. Why should a living entity be affected by place? You know, we we are told that if we go to a holy place that the effect of our bhakti can increase by a thousand times. Why is that? Why should place make a difference? Vishnu Chakravati Thakur goes on and says the jiva is influenced by time just as lightning is affected by time. Lightning happens at a certain time and ends at a certain time. It is affected by conditions, Vishnu Chakravati Thakur says, just as memory is affected by conditions. So Srila Prabhupada in the purport today talks about memory in terms of the evidence of the soul being continuous, At the same time, that the soul, that I as an individual, I can remember my past, I can plan for my future. In this way, I have an identity that is separate from past, present, and future. But still, Srila Prabhupada often makes the point that our memory is fallible, and that if you said to me, you know, what exactly were you doing yesterday at this specific minute, I I really wouldn't be able to answer you. I, I just really just don't know, right? Even if you asked me, you know what were you doing today? Exactly one hour ago, I'd have to say, well, what exactly was I doing? You know, where where was I? What was going on? I have to think about it. Right there's a, a certain exercise in what's called uh, yoga nidra, where you go through your day backwards mentally. You know, kind of like a film on rewind, and it's a difficult thing to do. You know, okay, but what did I do before this? And what did I do before this? And what did I do before this? So, the jiva is affected by uh, by memory and uh, by conditions. Vishnu Chakravarti Thakura says, just as memory is affected by conditions. It's influenced by nature, he says, just as sleep is. So again, this is Vishenam Chakravati Thakur analyzing Vidura's questions. This is not Vishnu Chakravati Thakur's questions. It's his understanding of what questions are being implied in this verse. So he says, it's affected by its nature, just as sleep is. So our, all of us have the experience that our awareness of self is affected by our nature in this life. What I have the nature of. You know, do I have a, a peaceful nature, a fighting nature, uh, and so forth. And that affects my consciousness, it affects how I view the world, it affects how I view other people, it affects how I view reality. Just as sleep is, so we also experience that our consciousness is affected by sleep, by the three states of consciousness, waking, dreaming, and deep sleep. And my, my sense of identity, my sense of knowledge becomes completely changed by these things such is not true for a liberated soul when a liberated soul sleeps uh, their consciousness is not affected they don't, they don't change their awareness of truth even in dreaming uh, Vishnu Chakravati Thakura goes on in his analysis, it is influenced by other objects, just as a pot is influenced by other objects so our consciousness is influenced by the objects around us I mean, even I have a wall in front of me, I can't see through the wall, it's affecting my consciousness. And we can say, well, what is it like for the liberated soul? We know that even in the subtle body, even if one is just covered by the subtle body, that one has 360 degree vision. So Just imagine the soul and the soul's ability for sense perceptions. And uh, Vishnu Chakravati Thakur ends his analysis by saying, because the jiva is a spiritual object, its knowledge should not become lost. How is the jiva's knowledge destroyed by ignorance? So this again is a very difficult and challenging question. It is the question, the, the primal root question. How is it that I, a pure soul, am in illusion? And how is it that I'm affected by all these things? I think this is a question in one sense that not only do we ask periodically of spiritual authorities, uh, and probably we keep asking it because we become more and more aware of the problem and uh, the answer becomes, how should we say, the answer becomes more and more pertinent to us. In the beginning we don't understand how fallen we are. and As we become more and more aware of our fallen condition and more and more aware of the glories of Krishna consciousness uh, the answer becomes more and more important to us also we become more and more aware of how these circumstances are affecting our consciousness we become aware of how with, our, with the best of intentions and the best of knowledge and the best of everything uh, still according to circumstances one may become overpowered by lust by anger, by greed, and so forth, and then we say, well, why did I do that, why did I say that, I, I shouldn't have said that, and, and i you know, we blame, because you'd said this, therefore I became angry, because this happened, uh, therefore I became lusty, you know, those guys who say, well, I, I raped you because uh, you were wearing a short skirt, you know? so we, we blame the circumstances, for our loss of awareness, for our loss of higher consciousness. And it's a sorrowful thing for us. Why are these circumstances affecting me in this way? And the question becomes something, again, that we're really asking throughout the day. As we fail in achieving our ideals at any particular time, again we ask, that: why did I do that? Why was I overcome by illusion? Why was I overcome by lower desires? Why was I overcome by something I don't want? Now, this was also Arjuna's question in the third chapter of the Bhagavad Gita. Why do I seem forced to act in a way contrary to what it appears that I want? So, of course, the answer is not given in this verse. This verse is just giving the question. So we're not going to get into the answer that much today, except to the extent that Srila that Prabhupada... Uh, does briefly in the purport and the answer that Srila Prabhupada gives in the purport is the same answer that (inaudible) that Sukadeva Goswami gave to Maharaj Brickett to this very question asked without as much detail in the second canto and the answer is we've been covered by a superior potency that although the jiva is superior to matter and although under normal circumstances the jiva should not be conditioned and overcome in these various circumstances, that we've been covered by something that is stronger than us. We are stronger than matter, but the covering that's over us is yet stronger than us. And I find it fascinating that in the ninth chapter of the second canto, when Krishna gives the Chatur Sloka to Lord Brahma, He explains how this material energy of illusion, which is basically the the energy that says you are separate from God and you are the center, that that energy is also Krishna. The energy itself is not separate from Krishna. So the energy that uh, allows us and apparently forces us, it's really allowing rather than forcing, but the energy that is allowing us to have these illusions and be affected by sleep and dream and time and place and circumstance, that energy itself is not separate from Krishna. That energy itself is spiritual. That energy itself is divine. Because only a spiritual and divine energy could do that to us. We are spiritual and divine ourselves. When Lord Balaram realized that the boys and calves were actually Krishna, and he went through a series of four steps trying to understand what the energy was and one of his steps was thinking is it a demon, is it a demigod and then he thought no they don't have the ability to bewilder me he concluded it must be Krishna he said only Krishna has the ability to bewilder me and similarly the conclusion is I must be bewildered by the will of the Lord himself because there's just no other explanation there's nothing else that could take away my power other than one of the energies of God and the main point that Srila makes here in the purport, is the fact that we have lost our higher consciousness or that it's covered is evidence that we are not God. There must be something higher. Yes, we are one with God in quality and in a very real sense we are God, but in a very real sense we are not God. If we were God, there wouldn't be something superior to us that could cover us. If the definition of God is uh, that being has no equal and no superior, if that's how we're going to define God, the greatest being without equal or superior, then there's no question of being covered by something superior to it. And that we are covered by something that we cannot get rid of by our own effort. Even the yoga systems that rely on one's own effort, like Asanga Yoga and Gan Yoga and Karma Yoga, Without some touch of bhakti, without some touch of the grace of God, it's not possible. I I just have an email in my inbox today from a devotee who's at the end of his Ph.D. And he says, you know, I've submitted it to the committee and now I have to see if they approve or if I have to make changes. Uh, You can do the best research in the world, but unless it's approved by your committee, you don't get your degree. You know, you could be the most qualified person in the world unless the employer decides to hire you, you don't get the job. So there's some touch of, of bhakti there. Even if one uses a mechanical system, there are mechanical systems that if you put your your bones and muscles and organs in a particular place through the asanas and you breathe in a particular way through the pranayam and you have that on the foundation of a of a life of of caring and nonviolence and truthfulness and cleanliness and so forth then, poof, you're going to go into a higher level of consciousness. So there is a mechanical process. But to live in that higher level of consciousness, even to have the mechanical process work is the grace of the Lord, frankly. To have the ability to follow the Yam and the yam, to have the ability to do the asanas. There's a video, Prabhupada going to Dr. Mishra's ashram in upstate New York. And you can see this one woman is trying to get into the asana and she just can't, her body isn't flexible enough. So even to be able to sit in the asanas, to do the pranayama, even that is the grace of the Lord, uh, what to speak of anything else. So to be covered by an energy we cannot get out of uh, entirely on our own power, that we need the element of grace, means that there is something superior to us, which means that I am not God. Now, why are we covered by this superior power? Because we want to be, but that we will not get into today at all. What we're going to look at today is simply, this question is a challenge. It is is the challenge. It's the challenge to the whole system. It's the challenge to the root of the philosophy of the Siddhanta. It's in one sense an ultimate challenge to God. Why would a, a kind, loving God Cover me with something that gives me so much suffering. Why is there suffering? It is the argument that the atheists make against the existence of God. That if there is a God, why would there be so much suffering? Why would there be so much unfairness? They therefore conclude there's no God, which means that they push aside all of the order and the majesty and the beauty and the incredible, incredible complexity and, and symbiosis of just this one planet that we're on which isn't exactly very scientific but this is the question and this question of course indicates really our own pride and our own uh, envy and hatred of God but still it is a question that is asked it's a question that's asked by Vidura a personal associate of the Lord it's a question that's asked by Maharaj Pariket who also saw the Lord personally. So if they ask that question, it is not exactly surprising that anyone else would ask that question. And we need to ask these questions. We need to air our doubts. If we don't get our doubts out in the air, they can't be destroyed. The demon of doubts has to be destroyed. We need to have people that we trust enough That we can reveal our doubts Without fear that they're going to denigrate us Without feeling, oh what a terrible question that is Oh you don't understand that, you have a doubt about that And as I mentioned, you know, this question keeps coming up in the Bhagavatam This isn't the first time that it's raised And it's being brought up by persons who are very advanced in transcendental science And as we advance in transcendental science This question keeps coming up because our awareness of the dichotomy becomes greater and greater. So that should not surprise us that we have some deep doubts. And today is also the day of the Raslila. And in the Raslila chapter, Maharaj Brikat asked Sukadeva Goswami, what is Krishna doing here? He is uh, the supreme truth. He is the supreme morality, right? Bhagavad Gita, which is ABC of spiritual life, wherever there's Krishna and his devotee like Arjuna, there's always going to be morality. Well, uh, this Rasa Lila doesn't seem very moral to me. I mean, if if we saw any ordinary person, you know, (laughs) uh, some unmarried man, unmarried young man, uh, going out and, and dancing and hugging and kissing the wives of others hundreds and thousands in the middle that's very immoral so why is Krishna doing this now the Acharya's comment that Marge Brickett asked this question not because he personally had doubt but because he knew that there were some people in the audience who were feeling this way but who didn't have the courage to voice their own doubts whose doubts were festering unspoken within them so he was willing to become the mouthpiece to voice their doubts so it could be cleared. I mean, he also asked the question, how could the gopis, just by meditating on someone who they thought was an ordinary boy, ordinary power, more, how could they become liberated? And Tukadeva Goswami says, you know, I already answered this question in the story of Shishupal, who thought of the Lord as an enemy. Yam Kroda Kama pranayati Bhavai that any thinking of krishna because he's the absolute truth will liberate one so one needs to surface one's doubts in the proper place in the proper place at the proper time one doesn't want to surface one's doubts in front of an audience that doesn't already have that doubt we don't you don't want to create doubts in people we sometimes have a situation as editors of back to godhead where a person submits an article where they raise and answer a doubt. And sometimes one of the editors will say, well, do we really want to do this? Maybe some of our readers don't have this doubt. Why should we implant it in them? You know, I read recently of someone who stopped practicing Krishna consciousness and he started researching on the, how would you say, he started researching the persons who were very critical of Srila Prabhupada, very critical of ISKCON. He said, well, when I was a practicing member, I didn't even consider some of these things, some of these historical things and some of these doubts and some of these questions. And now they're disturbing me. So certainly we don't want to create doubts in someone. Also, we don't want to ask our questions of somebody who doesn't know the answer. We also don't want to ask our questions of someone who's just going to shame us and belittle us for asking. I mean, I recall very soon after Srila Prabhupada left this planet, So one of the uh, 11 zonal acharyas was in New York giving a class. And I was really confused about the idea that uh, we have the guru birth after birth. And I had already one child I was expecting, a second child. And I was thinking, you know, these children may have been initiated in another lifetime, but in this lifetime would they get the same guru if they took initiation again? And I thought, if I died now and took birth again in this I couldn't have Srila Prabhupada as my Diksha Guru again, uh, Ritvik philosophy is notwithstanding. So, how do we mean, Janme Janme Prabhu say, You are my Lord, birth after birth? And we talk about the Guru coming back to free the disciple and so forth. So, I asked this question. It was uh, 350, 400 people in the class, and the person on the Vyasasan yelled at me in front of everyone he said you are asking this question because you're not serious (laughs) you don't want to complete your Krishna consciousness in this life you just want to engage in sense gratification and make the guru come back for you and screaming at me in front of all these people and I I felt uh, very embarrassed and ashamed that he was humiliating me so one should not air one's doubts in front of the people who will be hurt by one's doubts in front of a person who you don't have confidence will know the answer or a person who will shame you for asking such a question. But one must air one's doubts. One must air one's doubts. There's always somebody in some circumstance where we can air our doubts, and we need to air them until they're satisfied. Now, sometimes I find I have to put a doubt or a question uh, in a, on the we call the back burner for a while because I, I had doubts and questions where I asked and asked and just didn't get a satisfactory answer. And sometimes it was 10, 15 years later I got a satisfactory answer. Sometimes the reason for that is I didn't ask the right person. And sometimes the reason for that is my own consciousness needed more cleansing before I could understand the answer. Sometimes one gets the right answer, but one is still so clouded by passion, ignorance, that the answer just doesn't make any sense to them. And we see such as true on the material platform. Sometimes a, a child asks a question and we say, well, you have to know something else before you'll be able to understand the answer to this question. You have to get some a prerequisite set of knowledge or awareness. Then from the point of view of people being asked questions, so even the beginner in Krishna consciousness will find him or herself in a position of being asked questions. Of having people come to them and saying, You know, I don't understand this, please clear my doubt. So, whether we are capable of answering the question or not, even if we have to refer the person to someone else, even if we have to say, You know, I don't know the answer to this question, uh, you need to ask somebody else, or let me help you find someone else, or let's look it up and find out the answer, or whether we have a ready answer to the question. We should avoid shaming somebody. We should avoid shaming somebody. Now, if people ask a ridiculous question, like Srila Prabhupada was asked in Japan, have you ever seen the demigods? And he asked the boy, why are you asking this question? What profit will it give you? He said, if I have seen the demigods, how will that help you? If I haven't seen them, how will it hurt you? He said, why don't you ask me if I have seen Krishna? Krishna. So one can do that. Or Prabhupada asking the reporter who said, Have you ever seen Krishna? And Prabhupada said, If I answer you, will you take my answer? Will you accept what I have to say? I mean, I had someone recently who sent me the manuscript of a book and asked for my comments. And after going through the book, I thought, I don't have much nice to say about this book. I just don't, you know. The more I look through the book, uh, the more that my responses are going to be negative. So he asked me several times, please give me feedback on this book. And I said, well, I don't really know you, and I, I don't feel comfortable giving you my feedback. And then he said, well, could you write something endorsing the parts of the book that you like? And I said, no, I'm not really comfortable with that. So sometimes we may ask somebody, you know, are are you willing to hear what I have to say? Do, you have the, do we have the kind of relationship where if I answer your doubt, will you, will you take it? So that's fine. But we shouldn't shame somebody. We shouldn't shame someone for asking the question. I had an experience one time taking a, a course in counseling where we had two different teachers who taught different days of the course. And one of the teachers, they were both very knowledgeable in their subject matter, very expert. They were both really expert. One of the teachers was expert and proud. If you ever asked him a question that had any challenge in it, he took it that you were personally challenging him and his expertise. He would put the person down, he would shame them, he would humiliate them, he would denigrate them, belittle them, belittle them for asking the question, he would belittle the question as stupid. He would give the answer in a way to show that he knew more than the other person. So he'd give the answer in a way just simply to show off his superior knowledge rather than to enlighten that person. Then the other teacher, who was just as expert in the subject and the techniques and so forth, he had the opposite tact. Whoever asked a question, he honored them and he honored their asking of the question. He would always say, you know, thank you for asking the question, or that's a very good question. And even sometimes when the person asking the question was very obviously, to the rest of the class, asking something very foolish. They were they were asking something which, had they been paying attention and participating, they should have known the answer to it. It wasn't really a reasonable question, given the class that had gone on. Or it was a completely off-topic question. And still, he honored them, and he honored their question. I mean, he would sometimes say, well, this is really off-topic. I let, We'll answer it at another time. But... He never treated them as if they were a lesser being for having their question. He always treated them with respect. And watching these two styles and experiencing how I felt—not even when I was the questioner, but when I had to observe and, and hear someone else being the questioner—that when when the other questioner was humiliated, I I felt uh, sad and and helpless. That I I didn't want them to be suffering in that way and and I didn't know what I could do about it. I, I felt helpless to, to do anything. I couldn't challenge a teacher, hey, why are you dealing with them like that? And how I felt with a teacher who honored questions. And then I, I felt happy and safe. So it's our responsibility as teachers of Krishna consciousness that we create a safe atmosphere for people to reveal their doubts to us. On the ultimate side, if we don't have a safe atmosphere for the surfacing of doubts, then people will come to doubt Krishna consciousness itself, not only with their basic doubts fester, but they'll think, well, if these people don't want to answer my questions, there must not be an answer. And if there's not an answer, what am I doing here? One of the main reasons we take up Krishna consciousness is that everything is answered. Some things may be answered in an unfolding way in time as our own uh, advancement unfolds, but there is an answer. And to give people the understanding that there is an answer, we make a very self and welcoming atmosphere for questions, even very controversial questions. We never give the person the idea that, oh, this is an offensive question, it's a disrespectful question, or you're an offensive person for asking this question. We don't find that kind of response in the Shastra itself. We don't find Krishna shaming Arjuna. Even when Sugadeva Goswami says, I've answered this question before, he doesn't shame Maharaj Kricket. And he it goes on to answer the question. So without these questions and answers, there's not a dynamic exchange between guru and disciple. There's not the unfolding of Krishna consciousness. And his askings of questions and answers... Goes on just for enjoyment to Ramanticha, like Mahaprabhu asking Ramananda Roy questions. And he also challenged, he said, Well, that's external. Tell me something more. Or can you go higher? And Ramananda Roy is saying, Oh, nobody's asked me to go higher than this before. I don't even know if it's possible. <laughs> so, this, this kind of deep, difficult questions happens not only in the realm of people who have doubts that they want to clear not only in the realm of the struggling devotee going through an and or whatever, but it also happens on the realm of the highly advanced and realized souls who are chushanticha, ramanticha so we should not have a concept of faith as blind faith, Prabhupada says blind faith is condemned so thank you very much, questions, comments Okay,
1: so, Provost, questions or comments? Go ahead. Mother, I have a question. Go ahead. Please go ahead and ask. Yes, Mother, I have a question in general about the not specific about particular the class.
0: Okay. okay.
2: Mother, if we do not, if in spite of hearing properly, if we do not understand all the details or traditional topics in a class or the mind wanders, then does it mean that uh, that person won't attain spiritual perfection? Like Like similarly, if we compare to mundane educational classes, if the person does not understand, he may fail in the class. Does this hold true for spirituality?
0: Well, spirituality unfolds gradually and you're eternal. So it's not like a time cutoff. You know, in a regular school, there's an exam at a certain date and there's graduating at a certain date and they don't let you go on eternally. Right? Even you're getting your PhD, there's a cutoff. Usually it's seven years or nine years. And you have to finish in that time. And if you don't finish in that time, everything is wasted. Right? I had a friend who uh, was at the very end of her PhD. She was just about to defend her thesis and the chair of her committee got a stroke. And the new chair of her committee didn't like the work that she had done and asked her to do it over. But because she was at the end of the time of seven years, she didn't have time to do it over and so she never got her PhD. So that kind of situation doesn't happen in spiritual life. Krishna says, Swalpa, even a little progress in spiritual life carries over to the next life. So yes, there's a, there's exams throughout our life, and if we haven't heard properly and we're distracted, we may fail those little exams. That's true. And then we have a big exam at the time of death, and if we haven't heard properly, then we may not do as well on that final exam as we, as we could have otherwise. But Krishna Consciousness is eternal, the opportunity is eternal, so we, we keep having an opportunity to hear better and better and understand better and better until we become perfect. It's kind of like the teacher that you turn in the paper and they keep giving it back to you and working with you until you get everything right, it, it's not, there's no cutoff date. Like that, and even one may continue and get everything right in the planet where Krishna is having his pastimes in the material world. So, we see that there are many entities who are in that planet with Krishna who are not yet perfect, and they become perfect in Krishna's personal association. So, we should always be striving to do better, but we should not become discouraged if at this particular moment in in time I'm not doing as well as I would like to be doing is that all right?
1: thanks yes
0: anybody else I have a question
1: yeah you had mentioned that you asked a question and then you were um... Uh, actually there was somebody trying to ask questions so Mataji I couldn't tell who it was could you speak up Oh, maybe I'm mistaken. I thought I just heard somebody. Yes. Uh, I heard someone. Kill. I heard
2: someone
1: I heard someone answering a question.
0: I was going to say something. Okay, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> and then, Madame <laughs> Mohanty.
3: Uh, it says that the potent, the potent says the potent can exceed many potencies, but the potency cannot equal the potent at any stage. And in the Nila of, of Govardhan Puja we see that Krishna is placed from on in in top of of his head as an umbrella. So knowing that the potency is never never beyond or as potent as the as Krishna. It's not how does the Jiva soul uh feels
0: being given by Krishna, higher, Well, Govardhan's respect. not a Jiva soul. Govardhan is Krishna himself. But the the Jiva sometimes feels higher than Krishna out of love, like Madhya Soda, Nandamara, Upananda... Uh, the elderly residents of Vrindavan, they're not worshipping Krishna. They don't see that Krishna is God. They see that Narayan is God. And their view is that by the grace of Narayan, Krishna is saved from the demons, and, and I'm feeding Krishna. If I don't feed Krishna, he's going to be hungry. So, but this is all all out of love, where the devotee forgets that Krishna is the supreme potent but that's uh, we see that in this world also that the wife of the prime minister she doesn't think of him as the prime minister when they're in their private dealings she thinks of him just as her husband or the, the parents of the prime minister they just see him as their son uh, but the Govardhan Krishna Govardhan's not a jiva I'm not sure if I've answered your question
3: well, I have a... uh, he does also similar things with his devotees as the gopis and uh, another devotees who are not
0: himself yes, but that's that's love it's just like the otherwise it's not, it's not fun I mean Krishna has enjoys being the supreme and everybody worshipping him and Krishna also enjoys taking the role of a little child and taking the role of the spurned lover and he enjoys taking these roles where the cowherd boys defeat him in wrestling and it's it's fun, it's playful just like parents play games with their children and it wouldn't be very much fun if the parents always won the game it wouldn't be very much fun for either the children or the parents you know you're sitting down and I used to play scrabble with my parents and you know if I always lost then why would anybody want to play so that that, that wouldn't be russa but that's just russa it's, it's it's not tattva in the sense that it's not that any of the residents of the spiritual world are really above krishna that's that's not the case, that they feel like that out of love. I mean, even that Krishna is all attractive, you know, the gopis are running to Krishna in the middle of the night without even dressing properly, but the gopis can also say to Krishna, go away. I mean, when I say to Krishna, go away, it's because I'm in maya. I'm in Mahamaya I'm saying Krishna go away I, I don't want to know about you right now I want to be an illusion and forget about you but when the gopis are saying that to Krishna, they're they're doing that out of love. Now, how can they refuse the all-attractive that's drawing like like a magnet draws iron? But the fact of their refusal of Him gives Him pleasure. It enhances the lila, the separation and meeting. So that's that's playfulness. It, it's a pastime. sport. In one sense, you could say it's the highest tattva. In one sense, you could say the highest truth is that Mother Yasoda is Krishna's mother. But Krishna says, I am the mother. So what's a higher truth? That Krishna is everyone's mother or that Mother Yasoda is Krishna's mother? Ahambija pratapita, what's the higher truth? It's a different lens. Madame Mahamper, you had a
1: question? I was just noticing that you had, um, in your examples of uh, asking questions, you had mentioned one, and you didn't give the the answer to it, but I thought it was quite intriguing, the one that you had asked about uh, Prabhupada coming back. Will the spiritual master come back? And I figured you probably continued asking that question over the years until you got your satisfactory answer. So I was wondering what your answer was. Ah. What was the answer that you got?
0: My answer is that the guru continues to take responsibility for the disciple but may do so through other living entities. Yeah. Because Srila Prabhupada says guru is not a particular man, guru is a truth. And uh, he told, I think Sudama. He said, after I leave, you will hear me through, you know, through many different persons. In the fourth canto, it says that the faithful disciple will be instructed directly by the super soul after the guru leaves. We found that uh, Somagiri Thakur's guru spoke to him through Tintamani Bilvamangala's girlfriend. So uh, that it, it happens in that way. It's not that that particular jiva. That those particular jivas are going to have externally the same relationship. Uh, they might, they might, but again, they might not. So is, it's, in,
1: it's. Is it also.
0: Yeah, go ahead.
1: I'm sorry. Go ahead. Is it also mentioned that Prabhupada said we'll all be together again, so we'll be with Prabhupada again afterwards?
0: Well, Prabhupada did say we'd have an ispan in the spiritual sky. Of course, that doesn't mean. That we would have the same structure and hierarchy and relationships, obviously. <laughs> I certainly hope not. Uh, no, it's it's not going to be. It's, it's, <laughs> High you know, it's, it's it's just like in the Mormon temple. You know, they say if you get married in the temple, then you're eternally married to that person. And I was thinking. Why is, why is that appealing to people you know, I, I could never figure that out it's just like how many married couples really want to be eternally married to that person what's the percentage it's probably pretty low so I, the, the concept that we would have exactly the same relationship of course we're not going to we have different muscles with Krishna and so forth but yes there is an eternal relationship between us and the Guru between us and any jiva who's been a guru to us in any lifetime or our varieties of persons who've helped us on the spiritual path I mean when Krishna has the verse about gurus he talks it's in the plural so uh, the self-realized souls can impart knowledge to you so we have so many persons acting as gurus and we have an eternal bond with all of those persons certainly but the form of that bond will be vastly different I mean just vastly different in our in our eternal state it's not it's not going to be exactly the same kind of relationship
1: so when he says I'll come back again and again he's referring to a, a, another jiva or another person. he's
0: continuing to take responsibility I mean he may also choose to incarnate again and again the guru can choose to do that also, but it might not necessarily be that way. I see it basically that the person says I'm taking responsibility I mean look, even when Srila Prabhupada was physically present on the planet he mostly delegated his guru responsibility, just frankly I mean the, a large, large portion of his guru responsibility was delegated to the other devotees and through his books and his recordings and Srila Prabhupada only personally directly physically trained a very small handful of his disciples. So he was he was delegating a lot of the traditional, you know, Krishna going to Sandipani Muni's school in Ujjain and Prabhupada was delegating a lot of that even in his physical presence. So well, sometimes
1: you know, we wanted when Papa said something directly. Mm. We had higher trust in that than if uh, he's speaking through someone else. We don't know if it's tinged.
0: Mm-hmm, if this, mm-hmm, if, uh, mm-hmm. you know, there's
1: there's some trust difference that right. that we had when Prabhupada.
0: Anyway, what I've seen is. I'm that- not sure is that even right now when Prabhupada is not physically present on the planet, arguably so, I mean, unless he's present in another body and we haven't recognized him as such, which is possible, you know. That's the view of the Tibetan Buddhists, that they look for their acharya in a a new body, right? They go within two or three years after the passing of their acharya, they go look for a young child uh, who is the incarnation of their acharya so. Uh, putting that aside as, as a possibility I think that what I've seen practically is that anyone who wants to access Srila Prabhupada at the present time can do so uh, Chandra Moli Swami gave the story I think it's Chandra Moli Swami gave the story that one time when he was reading Srila Prabhupada's books he actually heard Srila Prabhupada speaking the purport actually heard Prabhupada's voice speaking the purport mm-hmm. I mean my own experience the first time I saw Prabhupada when I heard him giving a lecture sitting on the Vyasasana, I had the very strong experience that hearing a recording of Srila Prabhupada and, and hearing him speaking on the Vyasasana was an identical experience. Of course, it's not identical in the sense that I could ask the person in front of me a question and get an answer right then, whereas I can't ask the recording and get an answer right then. But I find I do get answers. I find that when I ask Srila Prabhupada questions that the answers are revealed in his recordings and in his books. Consistently so. Very consistently so. I'll have a question. It may not be that day. It may not be that minute. But you know, I will have a question and I'll be listening to a class and it could be a class I've heard. I, I mean, I've heard every single one of Srila Prabhupada's classes and conversations. Each one of them many, 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 many times. More than I can count. So I'll be listening to one that I've heard so many times before, and all of a sudden, the answer to the question that I have pops out of the classic. And the same with Prabhupada's purports, and it's happened to me so many times. And more than I can count it, and it can be a purport that I've read, you know, 30, 40 times. It can be a purport that I've read 30 or 40 times. It can be a purport that I've personally taught 10 times. And I'll read it again And the answer to the question that I have Jumps out at me and says Here's your answer So I think even If we're talking about directly from Srila Prabhupada That we have that Capacity of accessing Srila Prabhupada In that way um, How do we ever know that an answer is is Correct Ultimately we know that an answer is correct Because of confirmation From the Chaitanya Guru that when we hear the answer, when we that the Chaitanya Guru says yes, this is the answer, <laughs> and when we practically apply it, uh, then it's it's there. Damianti says, would it be Shri Prabhupada personally, or Super Soul, or Baller? I'm answering. I don't know. Maybe all of them. I, I don't know. That's beyond my pay grade, as they say. But but Prabhupada, the, She's writing that in the chat But Prabhupada says in the fourth canto In relation to King Malayajwaja Passing away and leaving his Wife by Ikshana That the sincere disciple Who is strictly following the orders of Guru That when the uh, Guru Departs this world That Cheta Guru uh, Takes over and that Krishna in the heart is giving and is that uh, super solar, is that Balaram? Sure, Balaram's fine. Lord, Richmond is fine. Shri uh, Mati Rathirati, who knows which personality at different times is guiding us. We are so blessed as to have a whole plethora of guides that not only, you know, we're connected with the parampara. It's like you go to a, a university, Prabhupada compared initiation to enrolling in a the university. There's so many professors. It's not that only your admissions officer is, is, or your academic advisor is giving you all the answers. You're getting answers from all the professors, from the library and so forth. So we are once we are officially enrolled, once we're initiated, into the Parampara, you're an enrolled student, then everyone, our Diksha Guru, our Param Guru, our Parma Parma Guru, nari Muni, no then all of the Shiksha Gurus in the Parampara, the whole library of the Shastra, everything is available to us. Uh, but our Diksha Guru does specifically, is the person who's specifically taking responsibility. Generally, it's the Diksha Guru is the person who's putting their name on the line. They're the person who enrolls us into the Parampara officially. And so they're the one taking the main responsibility. Krishna, I'm going to make sure this person is delivered. Does that mean that they have to do everything themselves, personally, certainly. So is that all
1: right? to take
0: question. We'll do that and then that's it because it is getting quite late.
2: I had a well, little, little, little short comment, and then a, a question. Um, I, you, you spoke a lot about how it's, it's a gradual process whereby one gains faith in the spiritual master to where that faith actually becomes absolute. And um, just like in, in, in very early on in the Bhagavad Gita. Arjuna accepts Krishna, the famous verse, "Karpanya and the latter part of that verse where he says that now I am your disciple and soul surrendered to you, please instruct me, but it's not, and I had to look this up, There's Prabhupada often quoted this and I often say it a lot when I'm speaking, that one has to have absolute faith in the Guru and there's the famous words of Arjuna where he says Sarvam which means I totally accept this, this truth, all that you say but I had to go look it up to see where did that come in the Bhagavad Gita where did Arjuna actually say I totally accept this truth, everything that's not until the 10th chapter
0: that's right, that's right and even then, he asked challenging questions, but then he's asking from the position of total faith. Yes.
2: Right. Uh, it, took t- it takes some time. And I think as we all look back in our devotional career, we can see that it was really gradual. we finally come to where we really accept, whether we understand it or like it or don't like it, we totally accept it. That's right. Without any, without any absolute faith.
0: Right. That takes time. It does take time. And even it's at the point of... You know, okay. This particular point, I may not understand, but I accept that it's true, and I accept that the understanding Mm. will come. Yes. Yes. Nice. Did you have a question too, or just that comment?
2: Well, uh, it it may have been a long question. I'll throw it out there, and if you want to answer it, you can. Um, you, You caught my interest when you were talking about. Uh, help, we have to deal very carefully with any question that anyone asks us. And always treat it with with with, with respect and and compassion. Um, and you gave many different examples. The one you didn't give is sometimes we'll have someone who asks a question that is absolutely challenging, without any desire to hear the right answer. There essentially a heckler in the, cloud, in, in the crowd
1: mm, mm, mm,
2: mm. and we deal with that one I mean it's not often we get them but sometimes that person will be there it's simply they're their inner cause trouble
0: mm. well we certainly don't want to disrespect the person individually but our main responsibility then is to the class as a whole uh, and sometimes you'll probably just start a kirtan and drown them out mm. you know and and sometimes Prabhupada just didn't even have a time for questions. He just simply stopped the class without, without having a question time. And, you know, sometimes you can just say, you know, thank you for asking your question, but I'm sorry our time's up. And, and try to have it in a way that you don't shame the person. Because when you, when you whenever you shame the person, first of all, it, it generally speaking, it doesn't please Krishna, generally speaking. And it also creates a bad taste for the audience. You know, it can end up creating a situation where the audience is is rejoicing in that person's suffering of being shamed. And it's it's not usually a good atmosphere. Now, if the person is actually an offender, that's something else. You know, if the person who's heckling is being out and out offensive in a heckling nasty way then shutting them down in front of the audience is a great victory like Krishna killed Shishupal in the Rajasuya Yajna but of course you let Shishupal go on for quite a while before he killed him mm-hmm. he didn't immediately kill him he gave him an, a chance, he gave him an opportunity so that that's rare I, that, that's really rare that you're dealing with a heckler who is, you know, a demon and whose, whose purpose, whose intention is disruption, whose intention is offense I, I find that to be extremely rare I mean, it's happened to me maybe, maybe once or twice, maybe that even people who ask questions that appear to be offensive are simply airing doubts you know, and I have had situations where people are just not willing to answer, to accept my answer and become more and more challenging and aggressive. But that doesn't mean I need to shame them. You know, the the urge to shame somebody is not coming from a nice place in our own heart and it, it will make the more elevated members of your assembly full of pain that you're doing that and it will encourage envy and pride in the members of the assembly who are at a lower level anyway what I do in such cases I just simply stop it I'll just I'll say something like you know obviously you you're just not going to be satisfied by anything I have to say and that's okay you know you don't have to be satisfied by what I have to say um Perhaps you can find somebody else who can answer your question. Okay, next, <laughs> or okay, we need, or you know, we need to stop. I'm sorry, I'm really sorry, but times run out, and and I, we really have to stop the questions now. So, if you have any, for, if you know, if you like, and I, I suggest that you ask somebody else these questions. And sometimes I physically just left the room. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll say to people, you know, questions are over, and then I just. I get off the seat, and I just walk out of the room, and I disappear.
3: I, I have a quick, quick question, Mother and if that's okay.
0: Yeah, we're going kind of late, but you're... Yes
3: is really fast sometimes because we're on the subject matter of question and answers and bearing our doubts or you know a clearing thing and sometimes i feel like um, it could also be between two uh, people that are close either two god sisters or whatever and it could be in conversation where you can see that the other person is you know saying or or, or giving their doubts or needing help or even saying i'm so uninspired or something how does the other person um stop um like in, how, how how do we deal with that and not be critical of the other one you, you
0: know what i mean i'm not sure so you're saying someone asked me your question
3: like let's say um i'm having a conversation with another god sister and there's not a question and answer because we're a little bit on the equal side. But I can hear in her voice that she's, you know, she's, oh, this is very difficult, or I can't do this, or no, I'm not going to do that, or, you know, she's being like this. But and I can see it's almost like a cry of help. And instead yeah. of, you know, it's, how do I... Like, sometimes I think that I could be critical and say, oh, she's just not a good devotee. Look at her. She's horrible. She doesn't want to chant her around. She's not going to serve the deity. She doesn't want to cook. She's, you know, all she's doing is this. She's in so much Maya. How, how is it that I could change my mentality and go, my God, she's crying for help. I need to help her.
0: Just practice. Ah, okay. Just practice, practice. with, You know, even if your initial response is critical as soon as you notice that you have a critical response and switch it and just say even artificially, she's crying for help, she's crying for help and then after saying that a few times, even mechanically, it'll sink in and we'll remember that we also cry for help, that we, you know, we also have our doubts we have our questions, we have our, our struggles, our difficulties and even the great devotees ask these questions you know they ask them for a different reason and a different level of consciousness, but they do ask these questions. So I had to just practice it's just noticing, oh wow i'm I'm getting I'm getting critical. I'm getting in a mood of superiority and pride. and whoops, my mood of superiority, criticalness and pride is just as bad, if not worse as the faults I'm finding in this other person. Oops mm-hmm. you know. And this person yes. is simply asking for help. Maybe I'm not the one who can give it. Maybe, you know, but that's all. And if they weren't sincere, they wouldn't be asking for help. Asking for help is also a sign of sincerity. All right, I do need to go now. Thank you, Srila Prabhupada All right.